Good morning again. We are drawing to the end of the summer and to the end, uh, towards the end of this sermon series. And what we've been doing throughout the summer is we've been looking at what we do on a Sunday morning and why we do it. Why do we dedicate so much time and effort to meeting regularly? And why do we do certain things every week when we gather? And so we've talked about almost all the other elements of the service, and now we're going to be talking about the sermon. And I think this is an important one. Statistics will tell you this is an important one for us to understand because uh, statistics say that the sermon is the number one way that people will judge a service. Whether they found it meaningful, whether they enjoyed it, a lot of it comes, right or, da- right or wrong, a lot of it comes down to preaching and, or to the sermon. And if that's going to have that kind of an influence on who we are as a church, I really hope that we are clear as a congregation on what the role of the sermon is. Because we dedicate an awful lot of time to it, don't we? Uh, I agree 100% with Cheryl that communion is the high point of the service. And yet we dedicate a lot more time to the sermon every week than we do to communion. And so I want to talk today about the role that the sermon plays in the service. Because remember, we're, we're, trying, we're working on developing a mindset as a congregation that we don't come to the service just to watch something or just to receive uh, we actually do something when we gather something happens when God's people come together in his name because God is especially present and the things we do in his name in his presence have a special significance so what happens what changes because we have a sermon on a weekly basis we're going to look at three we're going to break this down to three questions first of all we're going to talk about what is the sermon specifically the address that is given during the gathering of the congregation. Then we're going to talk about why we bother to have it in our worship service, especially these days, because you guys could go home, pull up YouTube, and listen to almost any preacher you want, right? You can listen to much better preachers than me preaching much better sermons, and you you have access, or you, if you want, you can listen to worse ones. You can find anything online. Why do we dedicate our precious time together to having our own sermon? And finally, we're going to talk about what actually happens in the preaching of God's word, in the sermon, what that changes. So first, let's figure out what the sermon is. And when I, talk, when I say sermon, I specifically mean the address to God's people, because there's a lot of different forms of speaking, of teaching, of that kind of thing, and, and there's different purposes for it. For instance, preaching here is different than if I were out on a street corner with a bullhorn, or out doing an evangelistic uh, crusade or something like that. There's different, different purposes. And so the roots of this practice are in, we find it in Acts chapter 2. We've used this verse a lot because this describes what the first church in Jerusalem after Pentecost did. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And we see the sermon as the modern equivalent of the teaching of the apostles. The apostles are not here to teach us in person, but we use their writings, we use the scripture, and we teach from them, and this is the modern equivalent. But this verse doesn't really tell us all that much about what the apostles were doing when they taught. It still leaves the, leaves the question kind of wide open. So what I want to do is I want to look at how the apostles would have learned to teach. Where, what would have been their influence? What, what would have been their, um, 
in their culture uh, in terms of what it meant to teach God's people. And the first thing that would have, the first way they would have been trained or influenced in teaching and in, in preaching would have been the synagogue. They would have been regularly attending synagogue. They probably did this all their lives. They definitely did it with Jesus. And the synagogue comes from this particular perspective, this particular tradition in Judaism of, of why you gather together and, and talk. And the roots go back to Exodus chapter 24. So God saved the Israelites out of slavery and brought them to Mount Sinai so they could sign a contract, so they could make a deal, right? So the, the Israelites are going to be God's people. God is going to be their God. They're going to make a covenant. And, but there's a problem. God says, all right, I'm ready to meet with you, and the people are terrified of his presence. They will not go up on the mountain. So God appoints Moses as the go-between. So Moses goes up on the mountain, talks with God. God tells him the conditions of the covenant. And then Moses comes down and talks to the people. And it says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. So God and God's people had a conversation about the covenant, and Moses was the go-between for them to bring them God's laws, right? Now, but this was not a one-time conversation because there are going to be generations and generations of God's people. And so Moses later in his final sermon tells them, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them in your, on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. They're supposed to be having constant conversations about the law. And this is ultimately what turns into the synagogues especially as the Israelites are spread out across the known world, they will, have, they will start meeting together, and when they build a building for this purpose, they call it a synagogue, and they'll meet together, and they'll read God's law, and they'll talk about it, and they'll explain it to each other so that everyone can understand the terms of their covenant with God. This is what Jesus did when he was traveling around going into synagogues. There's a very famous story of how Jesus launches his ministry. He goes into a synagogue in Nazareth where he'd been brought up, um, and uh, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling, he, unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, and he continues to read. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He reads from the prophets, the prophets talking about what God is doing through the covenant, and then he teaches them. He explains it. He explains to them that this thing is happening now. And this practice is one that was carried over into the church. Because Paul, when he's giving instructions to his protege, Timothy, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. It's that same principle. We read God's word, and we explain it. And we talk together about it so that we can all understand it. So the first thing that the sermon does is it is the reading and explaining of the covenant. We read God's word and we talk about it so that we can understand it. So that would have been the first influence that the disciples would have had for public speaking. Would have been being raised in the synagogue. This is what God's people do. The other influence they would have had would have been the ministry of Jesus. Jesus did something else. Now, the word in Greek, we translate as preach. 
personally, uh, after my study for this sermon, I think that's a bad translation. Because we talk about, like, practice what you preach. That means we think of preaching as, that word for us means, like, teaching morals, telling people that what they should do, which, as we'll see, is not an unfair word for what's happening here. But it's not what the Greek word means. Because in Greek, it says what Jesus preached was, um, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that word preach should actually more accurately be translated announce because it is specifically used to refer to announcing an event. Something has happened. Something has changed. So when you see in the New Testament it says preach, it really should say announce or proclaim. A lot of translations will say proclaim. Because Jesus is saying, hey, things have changed. And this is something that, again, is carried over into the New Testament or into the church because Paul tells Timothy, preach the word, announce the word, announce what has happened. Because we're not here to talk about the old covenant, are we? I'm not here to teach you how to follow the law of Moses. We're not here to learn how to follow the law of Moses because something new has happened. And so we announce that there is a new covenant. We announce that there is a kingdom. We announce that Jesus Christ has died, has risen to new life, and opens up a way for us to be God's people and for us to be restored into God's family. And that has to be a part of what we do on a Sunday morning. My dad told me when he was teaching, giving me advice on preaching when I was in college, he said, remember, and this may seem obvious, but he says, you always have to bring it back to Jesus. If you get through this sermon and you haven't gotten to Jesus, you haven't really preached the word because it all comes back to Jesus. It has to involve that announcement. You may remember, we preached through the entire Bible, and during the Old Testament, at the end of every sermon, we did the spoilers part where we jumped in. That's because you have to talk about Jesus. That's the important part that makes the new covenant available to us. So the sermon is an announcement of the good news of Jesus. And the last thing that, kind of, for me at least, and in what I find in Scripture, kind of defines a sermon is a word that we don't use very often. Uh, there's, a, there's a story in Acts where Paul goes into a synagogue, just like Jesus, and they give him an opportunity to preach, and they call it something different. It says, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So this is another side of what the disciples would have been used to in the, in the synagogue, that it wasn't just a scholarly discussion of the law, it was also a word of exhortation. How many of you have used the word exhortation in the last week or two? Anybody? Okay, so here's what it means. Broadly speaking, it means to motivate. Uh, it can be used in a couple of different ways. Here's an example from John the Baptist. Here's his style of exhortation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, that's a certain kind of motivation. It's a fire and brimstone kind of motivation. That's one side of it. That's the, you need to act. You need to do something because the fire's coming or the danger, you know, like, you need to do something. 
That's not the only type of exhortation because Paul will also tell Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. He's not telling them to go after him like John the Baptist. He's telling them to encourage them, to motivate them. But the common, these are very different ways to communicate, but the common overlap is that it's a call to action. It tells people that something needs to be done, that something needs to change, something needs to happen. So the sermon is a call to action for God's people. This, for me, is another defining thing about a sermon. When I'm, when I'm writing a sermon versus a lesson, a lesson, I can impart the knowledge, and if you learn the facts, if you learn the knowledge, then it's a successful lesson. And I can just have a list of th- topics to teach you and go through it as far as I can. But in a sermon, it has to come down to the so what. What do we do now? How does this change the way we live, or how does this shape the way we live? So a sermon is a call to action. Now, if that's what the sermon is, then why do we need a sermon when we gather? Why do we dedicate time to the sermon when we gather? Again, especially since you can, you can, not only can you do all of those things with each other in your small groups or things like that, but you can listen to preachers and teachers online, and, and there's so much that we can hear from so many different sources these days. Why do we dedicate our valuable time together to a sermon? Well, the first thing that I want us to understand is I I want to change our perspective on what the sermon is for just a little bit, okay? First thing I want us to understand is that God has a message and a plan for the congregation. We talk a lot about God's message, God's word for me, God has a word for me or for you. We talk a lot about God's plan for you, but God also has a message and a plan for the congregation. The congregation is a meaningful group in God's plan. We can see this in Revelation. The beginning of Revelation, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches. And I'm going to read you the beginning of one of those letters, and it's going to sound a bit funny because I'm going to say y'all to make it clear that the you is plural so that you'll hear it properly because he's talking to a congregation. So he says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's important. A lampstand is a church in this symbolism, okay? I know y'all's deeds, y'all's hard work, and y'all's perseverance. Keep it together now. I know that y'all cannot tolerate wicked people, that y'all have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. Y'all have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Who has done all those good things? The congregation, right? I doubt that every single one of them has done all of those things, and I bet some of them were better even than that. But as a congregation, they have done those good things. Yet, I hold this against y'all. Y'all have forsaken the love y'all had at first. The congregation has done that. Y'all have persevered... Oh, sorry. Nope. Consider how far y'all have fallen. Who's fallen? The congregation has fallen. Repent and do the things y'all did at first. If, you do not re- if y'all do not repent, I will come to y'all and remove y'all's lampstand from its place. Notice, the good things they did, they did as a congregation. The bad things they're doing, they're doing as a congregation. The things they need to change, they need to change as a congregation. And the consequences, if they don't, are congregational consequences. They will lose their lampstand, which is a symbol of their church. Jesus has a message and a plan for the church in Ephesus. 
And Jesus is sending it to them through John in this case. So God does have plans for congregations, not just individuals. Which means that God has a message that is particular to Turner Christian Church, which is one thing that you're not going to be able to get from any preacher anywhere else because that's not who they're talking to or who they're speaking for, right? You can find the best preacher in the world giving a sermon on the other side of the country. They're not talking about Turner Christian Church, which is why we give God an opportunity every week to speak to us particularly. And that leads us to the second thing that we see in Scripture, which is that God calls and equips certain believers to deliver that message. There's a reason why we don't just have a, a, a group conversation where we all just talk over each other. And Paul, is, Paul talks a lot in 1 Corinthians about having orderly service. And it's because God calls particular people to bring that message. He will use particular people for that. In Ephesians, he says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God chooses people to use to bring his word. Okay? Now, this is where things can get tricky these days because I, I myself am very wary of this uh, habit that, pa that pastors have these days of deciding for themselves that they've been called by God. Uh, and, and this habit that we have of building up churches around a personality. Um, that is a very fragile foundation for a church. So I will tell you, for those of you who haven't been here, who uh, weren't here when I started, I am here because this congregation called me. I am here because the congregation set a vision for where they wanted to go, and they had a committee that looked for a pastor to help with that leadership, and this church discerned to call me. And so God has called me through the congregation. Now, I'm not the only one that God has called to speak up here. That's why I'm not the only one who comes up here. You've heard from other people today that God has used. God can speak through a lot of people. But what we see in Scripture is that God calls particular people to speak to the rest of us, uh, to bring his message to us. I'll tell you, one of the things I love about weekly communion is I love the practice of it, but I also love the fact that I get to hear from different people every week. I love the fact that I get to listen to Cheryl talk about her experience of communion and her journey and what it means to her. And, and I am blessed by those so often because God uses the people that he calls up here to bring his word. So what we find then that, this, that sets the, sermon, uh, the role that the sermon plays in the gathering is that the sermon is how God addresses his covenant people. That is the function of the sermon, is that we have a place in the service where God can talk to us. Because everything else, God can connect with us in any part of the service, but pretty much every other part of the service involves us speaking to God. Right? Communion, not quite so much, but communion is an activity, which is one of the things that makes it powerful. But, you know, when we're singing, when we're giving, when we're, we, so much of it is us talking to God. And in the sermon, we spend some time listening. And in fact, and, and we're listening for the word of God. And the word of God is such an important role in preaching that Paul will actually call preaching prophecy. That's the word that he uses in 1 Corinthians. We, we, attach, we connect prophecy with telling the future. And that's, that's a potential 
part of it, but for him, the prophecy means speaking God's word. So Paul says uh, about the worship service, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So the church is edified, the church is built up and encouraged by receiving God's word through the people that he has given the word to. This is why Paul will say about his ministry, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So he's, call, he's saying we are, God is making his appeal through us. through human. God so frequently speaks to us through other human beings. It's amazing how often the Holy Spirit's voice sounds a lot like my wife. I will tell you that. The Holy Spirit sounds a lot like my wife most of the time. God uses people often, to bring us his word. So that's why we have a ser uh, the sermon in the service, is because it gives God a chance to talk to us. So now we're going to talk about what happens during a sermon. And here's the thing. We so often judge a sermon, and, a, and therefore a service, by how engaging it was, how good we feel the sermon was, and I, I want to push back against that, and not just to take pressure off myself. But every reason I'm going to give you for why the sermon is valuable, what the sermon does, has no connection with the quality of the sermon. Everything I'm about to say can apply equally to a terrible sermon and a mind-blowing sermon. Because I don't believe that the value of the time in the sermon is tied to the, the value of the performance, so to speak, or the quality of the performance, so to speak. So... Here's the, what happens when we have a sermon every week. First of all, the sermon dedicates time to listening to God. Even if you don't hear anything from him, there is value in setting aside time to listen. How you budget your time and your money shows where your values are, shows what's important to you. And when we understand the sermon as dedicating time to listening to God... Hearing from God, it shows that we value his leadership. Too often, religion can just be us feeling really good about all the things we can say about God. And that's especially a danger as a pastor, because I actually spend this time talking, although I do often hear things from God even as I'm talking. But when we understand the sermon as giving God time to speak to us, there is a value in that. Have you ever had conversations with people where they just set no aside a time for listening to you? How did that conversation feel? And I am especially grateful because as I look back to the sermons I gave when I was in college, I wasn't in college learning preaching or anything. I was in college learning politics, actually. But the church plant I was in, they let me preach because I was considering going into the ministry. And I gave some terrible sermons. And they were long that means that that church dedicated 45, 50 minutes to just waiting to see if God was going to say anything through me. <laughs> and there's value in that. But there's, there's more value than just the fact that we've dedicated time to God. There's actually something that the weekly habit of listening to sermons together does. Remember what Paul said, uh, for Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? to equip his people for works of service 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Notice, first of all, that it's given for the building up of the body of Christ. Okay? And if you've done any bodybuilding or any exercise, you know that you don't put in one good workout and everything's different. Right? It's actually really easy to put in one good workout. But actually building up the body is a repeated practice, right? It's a habit you have to get into. It's a lifestyle. And one of the things that happens as a congregation uh, gathers together and listens to the word together and listens to the same word and a word brought to that congregation, it forms them. It unites them. It gives them common experience, hopefully common vision, hopefully a common motivation. uh, But it, it builds us together. Even when I was, I think that it did a lot to uh, things like sitting through my terrible sermons when I was in college, they did a lot to set the personality of that church as a church that encouraged others and as a church where people could learn to serve God. But also as we, as we sit through you know, a sermon series that sets us a particular vision or, or all the experiences that we go through that build us up from week to week, those, help, uh, those shape us as a congregation. So the sermon trains us to be mature, a mature, active, and united body. So you may come out of a sermon and say, wow, I got nothing out of that one. And you might be right. You also might have learned from it without realizing it. A lot of what we learn is from repeated exercise. And also, you might not have learned anything, but it may have shaped the congregation in valuable ways. A third way that the sermon is valuable is because it confronts with us with something that is more powerful than the words that are being said. It confronts us with the word of God. I'm going to read you a passage that we usually think is talking about the Bible, but it's not. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. He's not talking about the Bible. Now, it includes the Bible, but he's talking about the message of God. It's actually, in this context, he's talking about the spoken word of God. Because they're talking about hearing the voice of God. But the fact is that when God's voice, when you hear God's voice, when he has a word for you, it cuts through. It gets through your ears and through your brain and into your heart. And the word of God is not necessarily the words of Matt, right? Or the words of the preacher. But somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit takes a hold, especially as we read the written word of God, the Holy Spirit takes a hold of that and does something with it. When the word of God gets into you, man, it can do some damage, right? Man, it can wreck the, the lifestyle you're trying to build for yourself and the image you have yourself. It can really change things as it gets in there. Because the sermon confronts us with the living word of God. And this explains one of the weirdest things you find out as a pastor. You can, we have some retired ministers in the church, and you can ask them. There's this weird thing about being a pastor. You can give the greatest barn-burning sermon you've ever ha- given in your life, the best sermon you've ever even heard in, in your life. Just everything was great. You, all the slides were in order. Every joke landed. Every, you know, and you will hear nothing from anybody afterward. And then you can give the most fumbling sermon 
you know, nothing went right in your week, your preparation wasn't right, you come in, you're distracted because of all the things going on, and, 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 you know, and you go through, and your slides weren't in order, and it's just a, you feel terrible about the sermon you gave, and people come up and go, wow, that really spoke to me. Which is not permission to be underprepared as a pastor. What it means, <laughs> what it means is that God can do more. It, what, the difference is God. The difference is what God can do with his word because it is alive. So the sermon confronts us with the living word of God. Which is why I say that the word of God is in the sermon. It's not necessarily the sermon. It's not necessarily exactly what I'm saying. Because I'm not perfect. But whenever we're presented with the word of God, it has the power to get in us and just change us. And finally, the opportunity give, the sermon gives us an opportunity to respond to God's call. Every time the word of God is preached and every time we are exhorted, we have an opportunity, an occasion, a prompt to react. You'll notice that at the end of every sermon, we invite people to respond. And that actually has some deep theological roots in the convictions, uh, uh, debates that happen about, can you actually turn to God or does God have to turn you first? Do you have to wait for God to convert you, like to give you a warm feeling in your heart before you can respond? And, and we believe very passionately that every time you hear the gospel, every time God's word grabs you, you have the opportunity to act. And that's so often the reason why God's word is being shared in Scripture. So the word that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about when he says the word of God is living and active, he's specifically talking about this verse at the bottom of the screen uh, from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's not if you've had a warm feeling, don't harden your hearts. It's if you've heard his voice. Remember when Paul talks about being the ambassador for God, he says, we are his, Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So as we are given the charge to change our lives, to, to act on what God has been saying, we are given the opportunity. And some people, sometimes, it's, it's one of the weird things about human beings, we need to be given the occasion to act. We may spend all week thinking, man, I really need to change this thing about myself. And then somebody says, okay, now is the time to make that decision. All of a sudden, that's when it'll click. So every time you hear the word and you, God's been tugging on you with something and you're called to act, that is a time to act. That doesn't mean put it off till Sunday. But when we hear the word, we're called to do something about it. So every sermon, every week is an occasion to make that decision. So, every time we preach, every time the word is preached, something happens that, that changes things for us. It builds up our, the maturity of our body. It gives us an occasion to respond. It, it infects us with the word of God, right? And you may not even realize what's happening. You ever had a song that you heard and you didn't think about it for like a week and then all of a sudden you're humming it again because it got buried in there deep? The word of God is like that. And this is something that happens every week and why we dedicate time to listening for God. Now, as we close, I want to give you these three takeaways okay, to helpfully motivate you 
as you come and, and to shape the way you understand your job in the sermon. Because your job is far more important than my job during the sermon. First of all, I want you to recognize that God speaks to his people every time they gather in his name. Every time we gather, God has something for us. Not, it may not be for you, although it probably is, but it's definitely for us. And it may also not be something you're aware that you received. One of the things they teach you in preaching is that, uh, like, especially when you're trying to get a vision going, that by the time you're tired saying it, people are just starting to remember it. So you may not realize the way you're picking up on these things, but it's happening. So every time we gather, God has something to say to Turner Christian Church. Every time. Second of all, I want you to remember that the value of the sermon comes from what happens in our hearts and our fellowship. If I preach the greatest sermon in my life, and it doesn't, and nobody's hearts are reached, it wasn't a successful sermon. If I preach a terrible sermon, and yet our hearts are changed, or our fellowship is changed, maybe we just, you know, we're all galvanized, we're brought together by the mutual suffering of that experience, <laughs> then it's valuable. Because remember, I told you that people judge, so the statistics tell us that people judge a service mainly by the sermon. And if that's true, then I want to make sure that you have the right metrics to judge that. It's not based on my performance. It's not based on how good I sound or, or how well it flowed or anything like that. It's based on how it trains us, how it reaches our hearts, and how it shapes our fellowship. And that can happen through me preaching. That can happen through who's praying. That can happen through who does the communion meditation. But that's the value that we're looking for. And finally... Remember that every sermon is an opportunity to answer the call of Jesus. Because there is good news to announce. I don't know if you've heard, Jesus is alive. He died for us, and he's alive because God raised him to new life, and that life is available to us. But taking on that life means committing to him and giving him our lives. And so maybe you're in a place where you need to make that first decision and give your life to Jesus in the first place. Today is the, the day that God's calling you to do that. 